0: Getting somewhere else is an essential form of thinking. It changes the way we view the world and the way we view our own homes. That's why we're here. We're here to investigate the stories in our own backyards. To talk to the people who live here. And work here. Volunteer here. Love here. Restore here. Also that we can travel back outside that place and see it from a different perspective. I'm Abby Newhouse. And I'm Melissa Wade. And we're here to think and investigate
1: and share stories about the varied places throughout our world, up close and from a distance.
0: In this episode, we walk the ground of historically black Woodland Cemetery in Richmond, investigating what it means to honor the dead, wondering what it means to be death positive, asking ourselves, if we have what it takes to be at peace with our mortality and plan for what happens after our last breaths. (sighs) So what do you think when I say death positive? Um, I I think good
2: feelings towards death. Would you consider yourself death positive? Yes and no. I think it's taken me, like, a while to get to a point where I'm okay with it and, like, strangely that came from kind of like distancing myself from religion. I've like allowed myself to think about my body and my life as temporary. And it's actually been
0: like weirdly peaceful for me. Actually, have you heard of the Buddhist practice where monks think about death at least five times a day? Um, I haven't. It's an important way for them to kind of recognize their alive in understanding that one day they won't be. In fact, they even do chants over deceased corpses in order to kind of maintain that reality that death is gonna happen to all of us. Like humans don't like that. We don't like our biological form, right? We like our spiritual and intellectual form. We do like to push our bodies and showcase what our bodies can do. Like look at this new yoga pose I can hold for an hour, but if you then tell that super like athletic person, hey, one day microbes are going to eat your flesh and fat right. and skin off your bones and you're going to decompose, they're like, ew, no. <laughs> <laughs>
3: well,
2: when you put it that way.
0: <laughs> but that's, that's right. the natural way of things. That's what happens to an animal when it dies, which is yeah. another biological creature like us.
2: Which again, just such a human thing that we want to believe that we are something different than other organic matter. I mean, it even goes back to the Egyptians in the in pyramids, you know, like they saved all the organs. They, you know, that like just extensive death practices that like maintained this level of humanity somehow.
0: I want to bring up this app, it's called We Croak. It tells you five times a day that you're going to die. Oh my gosh. And that's the whole idea, like knowledge of your death, acceptance that you will one day cease to exist makes you live better.
2: Hmm. What do they picture living better looks like with that knowledge?
0: I don't think it would change the what you're doing with your life. I think it's more of a mental acceptance. To quote the Order of the Good Deaths website, these are people who are death positive and believe it is not morbid or taboo to speak openly about death. They see honest conversation about death and dying as the cornerstone of a healthy society. So I think that's it, health, right? That mm. if we're not constantly putting The idea of death so far away from ourselves that we fear it, we have anxiety over it. Just recognizing it and being like, yep, uh uh-huh, that's just a natural part of life. That's just what's gonna happen to me. So you keep
2: saying the order of the good death. I'd like to hear a little bit more about what this is.
0: I know, what a good name, right? The order of the good death? Yes. (laughs) I love it. Okay. Kind of tactical. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So the order is this group of individuals that have something to do with the funeral industry, headed by Caitlin Doty. It goes back to that whole idea of being death positive, like talking about death and it not being taboo. So their goals are to foster national dialogue around the funeral industry because it is an industry. So like there was this book back in 1963 called The American Way of Death by Jessica Mitford. And it was this groundbreaking investigation into the funeral industry. And she basically found that because all of us have so much anxiety and aversion to the idea of death, we don't really interact with anything to do with funerals until we absolutely have to. And funerals are expensive. The average cost is like $6,000. And I'm not saying that all funeral directors are like used card salesmen. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying there's a possibility they could kind of push this anxiety-ridden person who just wants out of their office to make choices that maybe they don't really know what they're choosing. So the order of the good death, along with the internet, right? This This is possible because of the internet, because of the widespread of information that's available to all of us. Thank you, Internet. Uh, yeah, yeah. They make available resources that enable people to make accurate and informed decisions about funerals. Mm-hmm. They also like support different organizations and nonprofits that are working to make a good death more attainable, working to make a good death more environmentally friendly, that are working to even bring a good death back to what Burial practices used to be where the body was prepared at home by family members. Interesting. There hasn't always been this funeral industry model, right? That came about not even a hundred years ago. And Mm -hmm. so, if you go back even five hundred years ago, there was the ritual was you care for the dead, you you honor them you respect them and then you put them in the ground the whole idea of putting someone in the ground or setting them aflame those are normal those have been around for centuries decades like i think that you're saying this but like i would wager that it's an ancient form because they knew that we decompose like yeah honoring the dead matters right burial matters you know there is honor in maintaining this respect for the dead in looking back at your history, at your ancestors. And, and so in Richmond right now, there is a movement that's attempting to restore historic Black cemeteries that have fallen into misuse and neglect and have been overrun by natural elements, but also human debris and trash and neglect and vandalism. And that's kind of a part of this whole story, that it's not exactly a burial right but it's more so something the living do in order to maintain that connection to those who were Mm -hmm. especially for like a family cemetery that has gone back for
2: generations and it's something like woodland just like you might honor somebody's weird request to be composted yeah you, you have to honor also that they want to be buried with their family in a historic black cemetery because that's their story and that's an important story
0: that shouldn't be covered up and buried. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And you think of burial grounds as connected to heritage and to the social kind of soul of a community, right? It's not just about being able to talk about our own death or those two weeks that happen after someone dies, but also the ritual of caring for those who have been lost in a way that is environmentally friendly in a way that is equitable, in a way that is sustainable, in a way that is meaningful and important to each community. I think that was the kind of deeper reason we went to a cemetery in Richmond and walked around looking for graves that were lost. Yeah, to learn like what extent people
2: are investing in these places, in these people, in these families that should be known, should be recognized.
1: When we drive up to the gate of Woodland Cemetery, a historic black cemetery located on 30 acres by the border of Richmond, Virginia, we see it as it might have looked 60 or 70 years ago. Maybe what it looked like when Roxy Lyons used to visit as a child.
4: So my, it, was all, it was like a picnic. You come out here at uh, Mother's Day and you come out on Veterans Day, oh, Memorial gosh, Day, and there were families out here cleaning up the gravesites hmm. and bringing flowers. Hmm. So that so you and most of the families that we knew came out of Jackson Ward. We had a business in
1: Jackson. Her description of these annual meetups is idyllic across acres and acres of green grass, a creek, and well-kept graves, families gathering to pay their respects to deceased family members.
4: It was a big party. Yeah. You know, you, you I, you were the kids that, that the families had with them, you know, and we would all come out here and clean up. That was the thing. That was mm. a, a duty. But
1: over time, the cemetery started to fall into a state of rack and ruin. With no help from the city, family members struggled to maintain the cemetery against weeds and weather and vandalism. At some
4: point, I guess, did that I, kind of it got so overgrown. Yeah. by the by the 70s. Okay, well, I came back in the 80s. It was just so overgrown we couldn't even come back. I had I started bringing my son out here to get him to do what I was doing as a kid, hmm. and he would. You know, he was in this, he was a kid. Then he's in the 80s. He's in the 80s. He was about nine to 10. Hmm. And he w- we would come out, but as the 80s went on, the old girls, the guys, they didn't own it anymore. The place. Just he got to the point where you couldn't get in. Mm. There were critters out here. It was scary. I didn't want to be out. The grass grew tall. New trees took root.
1: The land undulated under heavy rains and came to swallow up whole gravestones, sidewalks, vaults, even. Families stopped visiting, and burials at Woodland declined.
0: But then, in 1993, a legend was buried there: Richmond-born tennis pro and social activist Arthur Ashe who requested to be laid to rest there next to his mother. To prepare for the funeral for the thousands who would come out to see the great man one last time and pay their respects, city and state workers worked around the clock for two days to clean up the area. After Arthur's uncle, Horace Ash, raised concerns about the site. Yet a few months after the event, the Washington Post ran a story about how the disrespect moved right back in. Ten weeks later, Dan Parker wrote, and the road that leads to the historically black Woodland Cemetery, again, has become a dumping ground for appliances, tires, and other trash. And a city official wants to move Ash's coffin from the cemetery to a more dignified setting. Even though he was granted his last wishes, some thought it wasn't good enough. Not for Arthur Ashe. To understand the legend, I will first give you his impressive tennis stats. Winner of three Grand Slam single titles, first black player selected to the United States Davis Cup team, and the only black man ever to win the singles title at Wimbledon, the US Open, and the Australian Open. Arthur Ashe is still considered one of the greatest tennis players to have played the game, but he was more than just an athlete, especially to his hometown. In fact, in 2019, after multiple requests over 30 years, the city finally renamed the Boulevard for Arthur Ashe, a road which leads from the tennis courts where Ashe once played as a boy to the Arthur Ashe Arena. Mayor LaVar Stoney believed it a fitting tribute to a Richmond hero.
1: Arthur Ashe is one of Richmond's true champions, not only on the court
2: as one of the world's greatest tennis players, but off the court as a champion for equality and social justice. His groundbreaking achievements and the dignity, grace, and
1: compassion with which he sought to change the world make him more than worthy of this honor.
0: Believe me, Ashe wrote in his autobiography, most people resist change, even when it promises to be for the better. But change will come, and if you acknowledge this simple but indisputable fact of life and understand that you must adjust to all change, then you will have a head start. Ash advocated working with what you had, starting where you were, and doing what you could, even in the face of setbacks. He started playing tennis at six years old, choosing a sport he was barred from competing in because of his race. But such hurdles, the segregation on the court, racism off of it, Even the lack of privacy later in life because of his gained celebrity. All these he faced with that same sober grace. He was one of the best men of his generation, said Magic Johnson. And his loss is a loss for all of us.
1: But as the Daily Press printed in 1993, Arthur Ashe would not rest in peace. Lifelong friend of the Ash family, City Councilman Roy A. West, introduced the move of three-time Grand Slam winner and his mother, Maddie Ash, to city administration, calling for the bodies to be laid in at a location more appropriate to the dignity of such important historical figures. Ash's widow was rumored to vote on the site of Ash staying in Woodland, calling instead for a promise of proper upkeep and maintenance to the cemetery. Isaiah Ensminger, the then superintendent of the cemeteries, said individual plot owners were responsible for the upkeep of the grounds. Meaning the Ash family, meaning every family of every body buried, were the ones tasked with cleanup, overgrowth maintenance, and trash removal.
0: To be moved out of an overgrown, neglected, historic black cemetery, or to demand better upkeep. That was the controversy. The answer to that question carried weight not only for Ash and his family, but for the other thousands of souls buried between Woodland's gates. What do you think that he's here? Like, how does that make you feel about the project? Does that add weight to it or or promise to it? It it adds weight. Mm.
4: It does, because Arthur came from out uh, of that area, too, for the Jackson Ward area. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. and for him to come back and want to claim it, even though this place looked like it looked, and as famous as he was, mm-hmm. uh, we're very proud to host him, to tell mm-hmm. you the truth. <laughs> I'm very happy that he's over here. And the Ash family is still connected
0: mm-hmm, to
4: the
5: cemetery. Very much so.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: So Ash stayed. His wife's call for proper care remained unheard for years, It wasn't the only call for change in respecting black humanity and burial grounds. The story of neglect, abuse, and loss of Richmond's historic black cemeteries presents itself in cycles. Here's another local legends burial controversy. After his death in 1901, renowned preacher Jasper Jones had to be moved into Woodland. From his original burial plot in Richmond's Sons and Daughters of Ham Cemetery, which was part of a patchwork of Black-owned burial grounds founded in 1815. In Richmond and Virginia's capital, as in other urban locales, public options for Black burials were limited and mostly relegated to rough potter's fields or segregated lowlands. But at the Ham Cemetery, Jasper's congregation was able to raise a noble obelisk over his grave, a 20-foot-high granite shaft that proclaimed his legacy to the world so why move? In short, development, gentrification. Richmond's north side neighborhoods were being transformed into streetcar suburbs populated by white residents who wanted the cemeteries closed. Black leaders rallied support from churches and business people to uphold their rights of burial, but authorities persuaded Virginia's General Assembly that the cemeteries were a nuisance and a health hazard. When John Jasper's congregation moved his remains in his obelisk in 1918, Woodland Cemetery was newly opened, founded by newspaper editor John Mitchell Jr. It was the actions of Black Richmonders fighting against racist city policies that won Mitchell the land, and it was to be a place set apart. As run by Mitchell called Woodland the most remarkable tract of land ever set aside for our people. Cemeteries like Woodland allowed black people to be remembered the way they wanted to be remembered in spite of their late 19th century society that stereotyped and negated their full and three-dimensional lives. Jasper Jones's monument still sits at the top of a hill of that remarkable tract of land. But Woodland Cemetery too, would suffer from the challenges facing burial sites founded by and serving the black community. Financial difficulties, public disinvestment, vandalism, and the dumping of trash on the graves of Black workers, leaders, veterans, and family members buried there.
1: But now, thanks to the work of a coalition of dedicated descendants and volunteers, those challenges are being addressed in a way that signals a turn. We entered Woodland Cemetery through one of the original three stone gates across the street from an industrial supplies warehouse, on the other side of the railroad tracks, across the field from the Federal Reserve, Richmond's billboards were visible from their perch along Best the highway, cars noisy on nearby I-64. Melissa, and this is Abby. Hi. I'm
0: John. Hi, John. Hi John. am
2: Hi Mark. Hi, Mark. How are you guys? Good, yes. Good. So we're here. Perfect.
1: Off the highway, though, inside the cemetery, it okay. was peaceful. Once we reached the center, where we met up with board members of the Woodland Restoration Foundation, the atmosphere became focused. Okay. Oh. The grass had been cut down, trash collected into piles, headstones unearthed, sidewalks revealed, a circular contemplation area revitalized. In 2019, Marvin Harris, the now executive director of the Woodland Restoration Foundation, focused his efforts on restoring the area after already putting years into doing the same at other historic black cemeteries. He once served as the director of the Evergreen Restoration Foundation, which organized volunteers and community efforts to revitalize the historic Evergreen Cemetery, which the United Nations recognized as a site of memory associated with the Slave Route Project. While that project existed outside the ownership of the land by the Enrichment Foundation, Harris's work at Woodland started with the purchase of its land by its foundation. With help from Henrico County and Mrs. Jean Ash, Harris put the project together, raised the money, purchased the Woodland Cemetery, and he and his board got to work. Melissa and I met up with a few of those board members on the grounds to witness their restoration efforts and hear their stories. Earlier, you heard the voice of board member, Patricia Bozeman, childhood acquaintance of Arthur Ashe. Here she is again, explaining her drive and doing this work
5: came out, I guess it was maybe just about two, a little over two years ago. Um, and so the volunteers were all I could do was cry because it was just like, oh my God, because my dad's been dead for over ten years. And uh, I would come periodically. And it didn't look bad. But he was the last one in the family hmm. who actually came out and did something. It's... um. You know, one man couldn't do it all.
0: Yeah. And
5: afterwards, but my sister and I always knew where my mother's family was buried. And then kind of said, oh, oh, goodness gracious, you know, my husband's, you know, grandparents would do it out here. So it wasn't too hard finding them. And the really nice thing about the cemetery is like a neighborhood. Yeah. You got your neighbors buried around you, you know?
0: There's this famous little tale that circulates about German philosopher Martin Heidegger. It claims that during a lecture in 1961, when Heidegger was asked how we might recover authenticity, he replied, in quite short fashion, that we should simply aim to spend more time in graveyards. Heidegger's masterpiece, Being and Time, defines authenticity as being aware of our own natural fragility. Being is very fragile, only lasting so long, and contemplating that makes us fear what the philosopher calls the nothing. Das Nich, a term referring to our abstract notion of death. Our fear makes us fill our lives with Das Garida. translation, Endless chatter. You know, ordering coffee, checking social media, reading the news, calling your mom to complain about your boss, watching Lifetime movies, blah, 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 endless chatter. All that chatter helps veil the truth that death is all around us. And in ignoring the natural truth of mortality, we lose ourselves in inauthentic fabricated social BS. We seek things that make us feel less fragile. Instead of visiting our loved ones in the cemetery, we seek social outlets, distractions. Cemeteries represent a being's fragility as Heidegger pragmatically pointed out, but also our need to immortalize and remember beyond that fragility. They exist as markers of our past neighborhoods, our connections to ancestors, old friends, family, and history overall. Paradoxically, in this way, time spent in a graveyard provides notes of both mortality and immortality, a melody of how we all die yet remain in the memory of those who want to keep us. The way Patricia explained it, the graveyard is an intergenerational compact, inspiring the young to maintain respect for ancestors, to maintain a connection to those they may have never met, but who matter in their being. Well, what do you what do you think it, what is the push to maintain a cemetery? Because there is that view out there, like they're dead, right? Mm-hmm.
5: Respect. Mm. Absolute respect. Would you like, you know, for someone to make a trash dump out of the place where your family, your loved ones, your friends are buried? Respect. Yeah. Mm -hmm. About every time I run into someone who um, has some connection to my past.
0: Yeah.
5: Um, So my husband has um, his grandmother, grandfather, and his aunt buried out here. And on my mother's side of the family, um, her, her, her mother father her grandmother her grandfather three of her uncles are in one plot and then next to well there's this uh, one single grave section in between more you know cousins so there are about 16 family members um, between my side of the family my husband's side of the family buried out here
0: yeah how does that make you feel when you find another connection it's wonderful Wonderful. (laughs) It's amazing, amazing to think that it's a cemetery that makes you feel less alone. The heartbreaking bit is that the extreme state of disrepair of the cemetery threatened those connections. It wasn't just some overgrown weeds or discarded candy wrappers. Families felt like the area was no longer safe to visit. Patricia alluded to prostitution happening on the grounds. Once a truck broke through the gate and dug tracks across the plots and the trash didn't come from the nearby road blown over by the wind, it was purposely dumped there. And even though Abby and I weren't there to see the worst of it before restoration began, we still witnessed the remnants of the vandalism. A pile of tires taller than me, construction debris dumped from a site somewhere else, glass bottles, appliances, metal scraps, buckets, waste discarded in a place thought to have been discarded itself. But Woodland and its inhabitants were not discards. They were family members. Here are board members Willie Montague and Roxy Lyons sharing their connections in Woodland. Is that what what makes you want to help out with this project yeah. too, is your personal connections? Yes. My
4: yeah. per, well, my, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother and, my, and her parents. And and then after I, I had been out here for over a year, probing, never realized my grandmother never had a headstone. Oh. Did and you I, find
2: it? No, she didn't have one. Oh, she didn't ever?
4: F- she didn't physically have one. So, so we we put we we put up and we bought. And I just had it put there about six months ago. Oh,
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you too? You have family connections have, here? Yeah,
4: my, I have a. My family has a plot. My grandfather, like his grandfather, bought a plot for eight people, mm-hmm. and it's
0: all the way on the other side. <laughs> well, we have- no firm number exists as to how many black cemeteries exist or even how many did before they were lost to urban development and gentrification. Many historians claim that every Black community present and growing after emancipation had at least one cemetery. In 2020, a bill was introduced in the Senate that would prompt the National Park Service to build a database and network of these old burial grounds, those that are and those that were. At Woodland Cemetery, Their work centers on a similar mapping, not only in cleaning up the visible grave plots, but in finding those graves swallowed up by earth, time, and abuse.
3: The
1: leader of our tour around the cemetery last month, board member John Shuck, carried a long pole, which he poked into the soft ground, searching for stones fallen beneath. Shuck has been cleaning up grave sites ever since he moved to the Richmond area 14 years ago. How do you? What's your process of finding the great headstones that are still underground?
2: You want me to get the tool?
1: Oh, I would love to see it.
3: <laughs> we, we we use probes, uh, <clears throat> and it's it's harder when you got a field like this because you actually don't know where they are. Yeah. But in the other outline areas, Jeez. you can see indentations where the burials. Yeah. And you can probe up and down that site.
0: Do you have more records of people buried here than you have markers? Right? Like you have. Well, let's
2: say the set of people we have records for and the set of people we have markers for, they intersect, but mm-hmm. there's people that we have markers for that we don't have records mm-hmm. and vice versa.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: I've gone through this and there's maybe the ones we, well, yeah, maybe this section, you know, like there's 180 markers here, let's say the records show another 40, but we've got 50 here that aren't in the records or
3: something. You know, something Within
1: weird. the first half hour of our tour, John uncovered a lost stone. He probed and hit rock, dug down around it, and found a small rectangular grave marker broken in two pieces. Wait for the best part, he told us, as he grabbed for a water bottle. Pouring water down over the stone, he revealed the name of the discovered member of Woodland Cemetery, Josiah I. Rogers, member of the Busy Bee Beneficial Club.
0: We we assumed we were walking into a maintenance project like we had already mapped and like found all of these plots but this is amazing as we walk
4: right we'll find
0: we're finding we're we'll finding headstones that are we're buried found, under the earth found over 42 hundred wow so far. Yeah. about
4: 1400 last
0: year I saw a number that there could be 30,000 yep. someone estimated yes. yep. mm-hmm. it's a long way to go <laughs>
1: And it's not just family members who are more involved. Henrico County has developed a strong partnership with the foundation, having donated twenty-five thousand dollars to their efforts at Woodland, as well as continual maintenance and volunteer aid. County representative in revitalization and community Ashley Catterton was on site during our visit to share more
2: about their role.
4: With that, and the county partnership started in
2: August of 2020, and. Um, the county manager is a huge support system as well. I mean, we had two big projects out here with him. I mean, he was out here like mowing too. Um, it's just been great. It's like we're um,
4: they'll
2: do. It. He'll do anything for Marvin and the team. You know, moving forward, this history doesn't die. And Yeah. You know, we can. It'll be sustainable and evolve. You know, as our generations continue to.
4: No. Come, hopefully, help. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah.
2: The board has
1: other big plans for the cemetery.
4: And um, we're working on all aspects as Mm. far as trying to raise funds to to continue the restoration and improvements over here. Very cool. Working towards uh, building an educational center.
2: Oh, yeah?
4: Yeah. Yeah. The chapel is going to be Mm changed into a museum, Uh a small museum. Uh, We're trying to partner with the uh, schools Mm -hmm. to have field trips out here. Um, We'll have information bios on people who are out here and their contributions to Richmond.
2: Oh,
1: yeah. They hope to create an immersive experience that asks visitors to contemplate history in many different ways, to honor those laid to rest and to honor the work done to recognize them. For instance, they uncovered William Custalo, known as Uncle Billy, and one of Richmond's wealthiest black men in the early 1900s. No one had heard of him for about 100 years until they uncovered his grave at East End Cemetery. Now they've researched them and found Custalo owned an integrated saloon, which is now the site of the National Theater downtown. Since his grave has been uncovered, Roxy said the city has plans to put a moniker in his name. But without this work, the community would not know the story.
0: As we walked Woodland with John, Mark, Roxy, Patricia, Willie, and Ashley, I not only felt their community, but a revitalized desire to honor and know the past. It is something I rarely look into. I'm more a future-minded person, always planning, but constantly pushing forward is like life on a treadmill, only worthy if in motion. Here in the graveyard, I felt a stillness around all the work being done, as if transience wasn't as fully realized here. I mean, it is crazy that we still have so many cemeteries. It must mean we need them. Still, I admit, I haven't visited the grave of a loved one in a long, long time, but I like knowing it is there. Is that because of my human fight against mortality or because of some ancestral pact?
1: In college, I used to walk through a cemetery to get to class. There was a headstone made of Legos for a boy who had died too young. There was a statue of a woman that students would visit for folklore classes where they chant weep, woman, weep, hoping that the legend was true, that the stone would leak. There were polygamist gravesites. One man's grave surrounded by several small headstones with no names, only the word wife on each. Cemeteries tell stories, ask you to think, remind you of communities long past. As I walked through Woodland, I worried about my footsteps disturbing the bodies underground. And though I feel that anxiety in every cemetery, here it was different. All the stories we'd heard blended together to create this society, it was like, as our headstones were exhumed, so were their voices. We all wonder who will remember us when we pass, what story we can add to the tapestry of humanity. It reminded me that it's enough to just be. People will do the work to remember. For some reason, it's a part of
0: who we are. In his book titled Cemeteries, Keith Egner uses photography to depict the history of America's memorial sites. In a conversation with The Atlantic about the work, Egner explained that the graves have been set up as houses, as beds for that final rest. However, he says that by the 20th century, those houses became more like forgotten shacks. People stopped visiting. Instead, they sent their old off to homes and hospitals to die, into caskets, and buried underground to be avoided altogether. It's a bleak overview but not an unwarranted depiction. I just think our time at Woodland offered a look at the alternative, a look at the living working for years to care for the dead, relatives or strangers, remembered or forgotten. And the mission at Woodland is bigger than that, for they are restoring not just the resting place, but the respect, equity, community, and history of those Black Americans resting there.
1: next, Melissa talks with certified thanatologist Gail Rubin about breaking the taboo to plan a good goodbye.
0: The first time I stood with death waiting in the room, I remember praying for an end the ending. In the living room of my childhood home, I prayed for my dying aunt to go gentle, to no longer suffer with fighting against the light. She did two rounds, but a year later was on hospice. Nothing else could be done. The unruly cells were everywhere. The house sunk slowly during those last couple weeks. My uncle walked among the animals and plants outside with his spine hunched, jumping in the dark as if ghosts occupied the corners. After my aunt's last pain breath, when arrangements needed to be made, my uncle switched into go mode. He picked out a casket, it's inside silky blue. He asked the florist to put small bird figurines inside the wreaths he ordered. He gathered up my aunt's beloved wing knickknacks and used them to decorate tables, corners, even the floor space below her casket in the funeral home. He asked me to bring my new fancy camera to the service. I taught him how to angle the flash up, and he took pictures of everything in the room. Guests whispered, but my uncle seemed calmer with his hands occupied by my camera, determined to remember these last few moments with his wife. He was proud of the ceremony he had planned, kept bringing up the type of wood chosen for the casket, the favorite sweater she wore, the birds perching everywhere. She would have loved it, I told him, and I'm pretty sure she would have. You see, my aunt did not experience a good death, even though she died at home under palliative care. It all happened quietly, without proper understanding of what was right or good or wanted. Sherwin Newland tells a story about his aunt and how we die. His aunt Rose also had cancer. When the disease worsened, Newland and some other family members convinced the doctors not to tell her. They decided to protect one another, Newland writes. From the open admission of a painful truth rather than achieve a final sharing that might have granted an enduring comfort and even some dignity at the end they knew she was dying rose knew she was dying but no one would talk about it casting a shadow over the last weeks of their time together in this way newland writes his aunt died alone my aunt died with all of us watching from various perches in the room but it still felt like she had ventured out on her own. She was on hospice by the end, under palliative sedation for the last couple weeks, given enough sedatives to induce unconsciousness. I remember morphine to more morphine to sedatives. I don't remember talking about death. I don't remember my aunt giving instructions, sharing her desires and last wishes. I don't remember wanting to talk about it, because I felt like I would be inviting in the inevitable. But that's not to say that talking out a better goodbye wouldn't have brought peace. Thanatologist Gail Rubin wrote the book on the good goodbye, dedicating her life to helping others realize what that is. There's this billboard she describes, advertising the services of a local funeral home that reads, Good grief comes with instructions. Pre-plan. That's the heart of it, Rubin says. Gail Rubin is the doyenne of death. A doyenne is a woman who is the most respected or prominent person in a particular field. As the prominent female figure on death, Rubin focuses on helping others do exactly as the Billboard instructed: plan. She's an award-winning speaker and author, creator of the Newly Dead Game, a death planning spin-off of the newlywed game, and a pioneer of the death cafe movement in the United States. She hosted the Before I Die Festival in 2017 and is working on a manual that will help others do the same in their own towns. Her award-winning book, A Good Goodbye, Funeral Planning for Those Who Don't Plan to Die, provides everything you never knew you needed to know about funeral planning, broaching the topic with a light touch. Gail even helps maintain a historic cemetery in her area. She became president of the nonprofit organization that supports historic Fairview Cemetery in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and is charged with the mission of maintaining the area and sharing details about its 12,000 plus inhabitants, keeping it alive, per se. I,
3: I have held death cafes in the cemetery, and um, it always gives you a perspective <laughs> doing
0: that. A death cafe is a gathering of people, often strangers, coming together to eat cake, drink tea, and discuss death. The objective? to increase awareness of death and help people make the most of their finite lives. The first death cafe held in London in 2011 was inspired by the ideas of a Swiss socialist who developed the concept of cafe mortels and has since spawned a worldwide movement. Thousands of death cafes have been held in over 80 countries and over 14,000 have been hosted here in the United States to date. Other than to talk about death, the cafes have no specific agenda. Anyone can join, whether religious, superstitious, spiritual, dying, or none of the above.
3: The topics that come up at a death cafe on a regular basis tend to fall into four categories. There's financial concerns. What's going to happen to my money? Should I, you know, should I do a will or a trust? There's medical concerns. People who don't want to be kept alive, you know, with extraordinary measures. And and there are some people who are interested in medical aid and dying. It's um, it became legal here in New Mexico uh, just last year. So so there's the uh, financial, the medical, the physical in terms of what am I going to do with all my stuff? And uh, and then also the spiritual is their life after death. I love it when we have people who are participating who have had near-death experiences, because that tells me there is something that continues on beyond this physical lifetime. But I'm not here to convince anybody of that. But I want to hear that person's near-death experience story and see see what I can learn from it.
0: Beyond these cafes, in her own presentations on the importance of planning for that final goodbye, Gale broaches death through humor and movie clips. Funny movie clips about the end? Uh, Weekend at Bernie's, right? It's the kind of comedy that has all the markings of a horror film. The two main characters were set to be killed by a hired gunman, but the gunman kills the man who hired them instead, that's Bernie, and the ones saved then pretend Bernie's dead body is still alive, so to get through a weekend bash at his house a corpse that flexible, that jolly, it definitely encourages the idea of just facing death right on, or at least the possibility of it. With death on the screen, the odd and dark, the ridiculous and common, it proves a perfect avenue into real conversations. In my family, we don't talk about death, even if my relatives unleash diatribes of their many illnesses every time I see them. There is camaraderie and aches and pains, but death is final, And we'd rather not talk about it. People don't want to talk
3: about death because they think if I talk about it, it's going to happen. And I love to break the news to people that guess what? We all have a 100 percent mortality rate. It's going to happen whether you talk about it or not. Talking about sex won't make you pregnant. Talking about funerals won't make you dead. (laughs) And I've been talking about it for over 12 years now. And so far, so good. It's also the fear of loss. People don't want to lose people that they love.
0: Death and dying, though, are more than personal experiences, dramas and loss. Death is a business. For the last century, dying has been the hospital's game and death, the work of the funeral industry. Before then, funerals were run by the family, attended and aided by the community. In the 19th century, a daughter might have cleaned and dressed her mother's deceased form, preparing her for a home viewing and burial. And that would have been seen as correct, a child's duty. There was no funeral parlor. There were funerals held in family parlors. The dead dressed and buried within a day or two. No need for embalming expensive caskets or city plots. But because of the mobile population after the industrialized revolution, because of the many bodies shipped home from World War II, because of a societal shying away from the dead, the funeral industry grew, and today is worth $20 billion annually. And over the years, it has become more expensive. The average funeral in 2019 cost about $9,000, more corporate, and more bureaucratic. It is a system that is needed daily, and hits the grieving when they aren't at their best. For Gail, her work in the death industry started with a wedding, something that warrants a lot of conversation at the family dinner table.
3: In 2000, we had a very creative Jewish Western wedding, and everybody had such a good time, I wanted to write a book about creative life cycle events and call it Matchings, Hatchings, and Dispatchings. I got to write a monthly feature in our local newspaper about weddings, births and deaths. And it was the stories about death and funerals that got the most reader response. And that, that told me a lot, but at the time there was not much about creative funeral planning. So I focused on funerals and that changed the course of my career. I I became a certified thanatologist, which is a fancy name for a death educator. Uh, I got trained as a certified funeral celebrant and I've done a number of creative, wonderful, meaningful um, memorial services and funerals for folks that are tailored to be all about the person who died and their relationship with their loved ones.
0: This is the good goodbye. It is a final farewell, a celebration, a memorial, a tying up of loose ends that is inherited under the duress of loss or stamped out by a funeral director alone. Gail tells me a story of one of her close friends. She was his hospice contact and the one who found his body after his final breath.
3: That was when his planning, he wrote a letter he titled, Upon My Death. And when he died, Oh, my God, what a gift that turned out to be, because I had contacts for his sisters, for the people who needed to be informed about his death, for the accounts for his bank account, credit cards, retirement, pension, utilities, and where to find the important papers. He lived in a rental that had to be cleared out in short order. Because of his guidance, we came up with a plan to disperse his possessions in three days. And one of the things he said in his letter was, I request that I receive no funeral, but I think Gail will insist on holding a memorial service. And yes, I did insist on holding a memorial service because
0: Gary's life was worth celebrating. And yours is too, Gail says. A part of that celebration comes in the form of that Upon My Death letter, which allows loved ones the peace of mind of knowing exactly what should be done, not only with the body and for the ceremony, but with everything else left behind. Because of the modern innovations in the death industry, now there are even more options than color and wood type of casket. Gail says that it might be nice to ask those in your life, and yourself. Do you have a preference for burial, cremation,
3: donating your body to science? In fact, we have a whole world of disposition options that are starting to open up. Cremation can also be done by water.
0: I saw an article a few years back about the fight for the right to be cremated by water that as aquamation, as the process is called, was gaining traction in America about eight years ago, there were groups fighting against it. In 2016, for the first time in the US, cremation became more common for the deceased than entombment. This shift might have something to do with the high cost of traditional burial and the loosening of society's view of what is morally acceptable when disposing of a body. There is also the modern question of environmental impact. More than 4 million gallons of toxic embalming fluids and 20 million feet of wood are put in the ground in the US every year while a single cremation emits as much carbon dioxide as a 1,000-mile car trip. Thus the rise in America of green burials, where bodies are wrapped in biodegradable material and not embalmed, where loved ones are turned into compost or aquamated, dunked in a high-pressure chamber filled with lye and water, which is heated to somewhere between 200 and 300 degrees and dissolves flesh, blood, and muscle in about six to 12 hours. When the water is drained, all that will remain is bone and metal medical implants, if any. The bones can be ground into ash and then sent to the family if requested. The wastewater gets flushed and the whole process is carried out with no toxic emissions or greenhouse gases. So what's the issue? Ah, well, the article I read by Emily Atkin goes on to say that the leading opposition was issued by a politician who was also in the casket building industry. Other politicians spoke out because they called it flushing a loved one down the drain. So back to that moral question of what to do with the dead body. What is right? What is wrong? For as long as there have been civilizations, there have been death rituals. And for as long as there have been death rituals, there have been cultural clashes over one person's choice versus another's. In a small village in the mountains of Indonesia, They mummify and live with the corpses of their dead. In Japan, loved ones pluck bones out of cremation ashes with chopsticks in one specialized ceremony. Parsis give their bodies to the vultures in the Tower of Silence. And where there are no vultures, to the sun. But still, once your curiosity for the world's burial practice is satiated, it is important to question yourself and what is right for your body and what your loved ones would want you to do with theirs.
3: You know, even though we have a 100% mortality rate, less than 30% of adults have wills, have advanced medical directives, have have made estate plans. So that leaves 70% or more of our loved ones that are going to be in a heap of trouble. Not if, but when you uh, shuffle off this mortal coil
0: There is a seriousness to a will that makes people leave it until later, until they think the end is near. But these things are for the living, for the grieving. There's this metaphor in Lemony Snicket that likens losing someone suddenly to thinking there is one more step to the staircase when there isn't. Your foot falls down through the air and there is a sickly moment of dark surprise as you try and readjust the way you thought of things even though you know of this 100% mortality rate, is still a surprise to face it. The more of us start having honest
3: conversations about death and planning ahead for it, we can make it so much better for our loved ones.
0: And doing a good job might mean some administrative duties as well, a little human resources for yourself.
3: Five things you need to know about anybody that you would be planning a funeral for, and most of it is regarding the death certificate. You need to know the city they were born in, mother's maiden name, because you have to have the full name, not just their married name,
0: social security number. And then there are the online passwords. Apparently there are like 30 million dead people still active on Facebook, still account holders. I mean, no matter when I die, no one is going to be able to find my MySpace account to cancel that. It will forever swim in the nether regions of the internet. I don't even know where it is. But also, Gail says, you should have a folder with all the important documents that put your life on paper, your social security number, your birth certificate, your life insurance information, your advanced medical directives, your bills, and again, all those passwords. After your files are complete, leave your office and talk it out. Go to a death cafe, play the newly dead game, or download a free planning form to help pull together your end-of-life details by going to a agoodgoodbye.com and getting a 10-page planning form there that will help you get the whole thing started. And along the way, maybe watch a comedy that helps, possibly leaving it to Monty Python to get the conversation started.
3: And why we all got to go
4: sometime oh, this, this is Mr. Death I Reaper
2: well that's cast rather a gloom over the evening hasn't it
0: Okay. So Abby, <laughs> let's prepare your advanced directive. Are you ready? I'm
2: ready. I'm just, I'm getting in the zone. Oh, I'm meditating. I'm feeling peace with my impending do.
0: Okay. You're going to die.
2: <laughs> Got it. I'm gonna die. Yeah, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I will die. I will die. I'm going to
0: die. Good. Okay. Now you're feeling very at peace with it and, and I'm ready. Yeah. Basically, what do you want to happen to your body? Oh man.
2: Um, what are my options?
0: Well, okay. So in most States you have three major options, be cremated, be buried, or give your body to science. Okay. Okay.
2: If those are my only three options, oof you could definitely see a good reason for giving your body to science. I'm interested in that because I like the idea of my body giving something back to the world. Um, So that's probably higher on the list. I would say second is the cremation because it feels again, like one more of one of those like natural ways to get rid of, rid of a body, even though you that it go out into the atmosphere. I was kind of like, I don't know if that's, that
0: helpful? That's true. There is water cremation, which we talked about, and human composting, which is only available in one state, and natural burial, meaning that you can be buried in a natural cemetery without a casket and embalming. In fact, when I told people about that option, a lot of people seem interested in that. Okay, what do you want people to do with your body after you die?
5: Two things. One, if we don't have that much money, just uh, either bury me under a tree so I can, uh, like, or plant me next to a tree. If we do have enough money, I want to do a Tibetan air funeral where you go to China and they take you up in the mountains and cut your body up and they let the vultures just come and pick you away. Those are my, those are my two uh, top options
3: right there.
2: <laughs> Wow. Mm, I say cremate or berry. Either one I'm okay with. It'd be nice to be like in a peaceful field. That'd be cool. But I also don't really think that where or what matters. I'd be against spending a lot of money on me and my body. I don't want that to happen. I think the money can go somewhere better. I want to be turned into a train. Okay. No casket, nothing
0: plant something inside of me and just grow me nice because i mean what's the point of paying all that money in my estimation it looks like most people would like to be turned into trees as long as it doesn't cost a lot of money
1: thanks for listening we owe a huge thank you to all the people who let us interview them for this episode to Marvin Harris of the Woodland Restoration Foundation, along with board members John Shuck, Willie Montague, Roxy Lyons, Mark Scheimder, and Patricia Bozeman, as well as Henrico County Representative Ashley Catterton. Thank you for the informative and enjoyable tour of Woodland Cemetery, and for all you do in revitalizing Richmond. For our listeners interested in helping with the Woodland Restoration Project, you can find out more, donate, and ask about your own relatives on their website, woodlandrestorationfoundation.org And thank you to Gail Rubin, the Doyenne of death, for her humor and expertise. Make sure to visit agoodgoodbye.com for your free post-death planning packet. And a thank you to the source material we used for research and background for this episode. Writing and videos by Caitlin Doughty and The Order of the Good Death, articles from Dan Parker for The Post, Ryan K. Smith for Time, as well as the work of Emily Atkin and Keith Egener and The Wisdom of Monty Python. This episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Abby Newhouse, and Melissa Wade. All sound effects and music not recorded by us come from Epidemic Sound. Learn more about this episode at our website, we'reherepodcast.com, at our Instagram at we'rehere.podcast, and on Twitter at we underscore R-E here. Until next week, we're here.